Hello, and welcome to the Race, Wealth, and Health Podcast, a podcast that serves to educate and empower while we explore the intersections of social justice, economic empowerment, and holistic well-being with the communities of color. I am your host, Dr. Joycelyn Morris, and I invite you to join me as we dive deep into the crucial topics that shape our lives, challenge the status quo, and strive for a more equitable future for all. Welcome to the Race, Wealth, and Health podcast, where the fight for justice begins. Hello, Dr. Wilkerson. How are you? I am doing fine. Thank you for having me on today. Yes, I am so excited to have you join us today. Dr. Wilkerson is a scholar and social reformer who examines academia and analyzes instructional practices, both in higher education, to better understand enhancing inclusive teaching practices. She's a champion for equity and excellence in higher education, as evidenced by the awards she's earned, the prestigious grant funding, and the leadership role she occupies within the National Educational Organizations. Dr. Wilkinson is currently assistant professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Higher Education at the University of Central Florida's College of Community Innovation and Education. So again, welcome. Really excited to be here. I don't know if we're going to get to talk about this, but our connection, it feels... Yeah, so that's where I was going to go next, right? So while uh, Dr. Wilkinson um, is currently a professor at University of Central Florida, uh, she attended the Florida University um, Go Rattlers, right? Exactly. I'm going to end up having a lot of Rattlers on here, so (laughs) my listeners are going to be tired of that introduction. But yes, so we met on the campus of FAMU. participating in student government, similar to a couple of my other stories with some some good friends. I forget, you were poli-sci major, right? That's correct. So you really yep. did forget. Yep. I almost, I was like, wait, did I ever call? Yeah. Yes, remember we had the conversation because you were a poli-sci major, similar to uh, Dr. Watkins, who's also a guest right. on the podcast. Yes, I was in business for those who... <laughs> so that being said, on campuses, it's one of those things where depending on your college, very much so determines like who you interact with, unless you take the initiative to join other outside organizations similar to uh, student government like we did. So I've known uh, Dr. Wilkinson for quite some time, but really excited to be on this side of the conversation with her, uh, talking about the work that she does, uh, not just the work she does, but really what you're here to discuss today, which is the idea of, you know, from within, you know, healing the mind and body towards wellness. And so I'd love for you to start by giving our listeners just a little bit of an overview of your journey. Like, tell me a little bit about yourself professionally. Yeah. So first of all, I want to drop the formality immediately, um, primarily because we have a connection that goes beyond the topic and any work that I do in uh, act. Um, and I want your listeners to know that I am just Amanda Wilkerson, the eldest daughter of Dewey and Valerie Wilkerson. And I say that because I really believe that all that I am or ever really hope to be is because my parents uh, did everything they could to plant um, the seeds of love and nourishment, my desire um, to love learning in the way that I do. They planted that in me. And places like Florida A&M University, unlike me, um, other higher education institutions, they watered that. 
they water that a lot. They know how to reach and teach students, uh, which is not necessarily uh, the case for all institutions. And I think ironically, I, I, I don't know if you got a chance, Dr. Morris, but I, I really quickly looked at the decision of the Supreme Court regarding yes. um, changing how post-secondary institutions admit students. And I will say um, that it is a very unjust ruling for me because we know that it's not about the meritorious accolades of anybody. They have special admissions for other students, but I think that coming on the heels of that decision today, I have a lot to talk about. Um, so I owe a lot of credit to my parents. They are themselves educators in the K-12 environment. And really my entire life, I've been the type of person that just love reading, love books. And so it seems very appropriate that at this point in my life, the season in my life, what I'm doing now is creating the books that others can read. I'm the author of two edited academic publications. I have over 27 academic articles or book chapters. And my research can be really put into three different buckets. Mm -hmm. uh, I look at pedagogical practices, but in an affirming way, I try to do counter narratives about what HBCUs do very well. So if you look at any of amount of the research on historically black colleges and universities, they're literally going to talk about students um, either being underprepared academically or not having the money financially to really enjoy um, the traditional comforts of, of the academy. Um, they're going to talk about the um, administrative structure of the institution. And what I've decided to do is turn that completely on its head because working at a PWI and learning at an HBCU, it taught me that HBCUs, they understand how to teach students very well. And this is my way of saying to the academy, you may look at the students that they have, but let's look at the faculty and the ways in which they inculcate student success. So that's one area that I look at because I am of a minoritized status. I'm a black female. I was looking at ways in which um, higher education can do a better job of diversifying faculty. Um, when I got hired here at the University of Central Florida, I was one of 12 employees out of about 300 um, that got hired the year that I got hired. And of the 12 Black faculty, I was the only Black female um, to be hired in a tenure track role. Um, that's not a badge of honor for me because I come out of an environment and I lived in a community where I wasn't the only. And I think that it is unfortunate that I was here. And so a part of my writing is dedicated to helping the academy understand how we can do a better job of diversifying the faculty workforce. And initially, one of the books that I have written talked about the experiences of Black faculty. And another one talked about framework we can use to support the success of faculty. And finally, um, my last bucket of research work is in looking at the political socialization of Black students who um, are educated at HBCUs. And I'll have to say, again, it was my lived experience. Like at FAMU and other HBCUs, whether it's a Bethune-Cookman, a Howard University, a Hampton, uh, Spelman, Morehouse, Clark Atlanta University, uh, these students have a unique way of uh, utilizing the campus space in order to build their academic chops, but also their political sensibilities. And they go on to be leaders in the world. And I wanted to really talk about the ways in which those beliefs and values were developed as college students and what that might mean for uh, the academy in terms of training what we call student personnel professionals. So that's a lot of boring stuff, but 
the most interesting no, thing. No, not at all. <laughs> the most interesting thing is that in reaching those professional attributes and the goals that I've had for myself, I've come through a personal journey and I am looking forward to unpacking that journey here today on this broadcast. Awesome. So you've given our listeners and myself a lot to talk about. And I know based on when this comes out that we are in a time of a Supreme Court ruling that has just been uh, released around uh, the consideration of race when it comes to higher education and, and admissions. And so I just want to note that for our listeners. But the other thing I also want to note that before we leave, I definitely want to get those links um, and information to your books so I can be sure to provide that uh, for our listeners as well in the show notes. Um, but that being said, what a journey, right? What amazing work that you are that you're working on. And so, as you mentioned, you know, our conversation is around how you've worked on healing and wellness and how that has helped you along this journey, along your professional journey. So how did you come to this realization about the intersection between your personal wellness and your professional work in terms of your personal wellness and how that was needed in order to continue to fuel and to move forward professionally? Girl, that's a good question. And I'm going to be honest, had I thought about that question earlier on in my career, I would have thought differently about how I presented uh, my interests. I am the type of person that will, if you give me a task to do, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability because at one point in time, I would think about doing it in a way that would bring you joy because you asked me to do it and not considering the cost, right? Um, not balancing my personal life, not making sure that I'm centering me and my joy so that I can bring joy to everything else that I am doing. And that is a burden that I think rests on the shoulders of not just people like me who do this work, but in particular, women, um, women, and I could imagine women who have families and I don't have my own family yet. And so I don't carry that burden in the same way, but it was a burden. And that burden was getting hard for me to carry and balance. I started my doctoral journey in 20. Um, and at the time that I started, I was going through a lot of personal transformation um, in that I was not only leaving what I knew for most of my adult life after high school, which was Tallahassee and being in um, the great environment that is Tallahassee. It's one thing to go to a school in a big city like Orlando. It's a very different thing to go to a school where the focus is school. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. you get over the clubs very quickly because they end up being the same kind of environment over and over again, right? Um, but my life had changed personally. I had ended a, a long-term um, relationship and now I was walking into another big step in direction of my life in terms of my professional career. And I had not given myself the time or the process to break and just be. Because instead of feeling and sitting in the, girl, your whole life is changing. You're bringing on this other responsibility that's a weighty one. Like going to school is one thing. Getting an advanced degree, a terminal degree, it takes a lot of time and commitment. So you're already going to have to kiss and wave goodbye to a lot of things and people. 
but I was restarting this new journey. And in 2013 to 2016, which is when I graduated and then took on a postdoc uh, associate position, I had not stopped and really did life. And that was beginning to take a toll on me, if not mentally, it was showing up in, uh, physically. Let me explain what I mean, because I want to be very explicit with your audience. I had the I had the mind of an elephant, but a body of an elephant too. I weighed about 430 tons. And even though I know how to dress and doll myself up and make me look beautiful, I was beginning to feel the fatigue of carrying so much weight because I'm not young anymore. And so it got into a point where I had to say to myself, when's the last time, Amanda, that you thought about you before this job? When's the last time, Amanda, you thought about your goals ahead of the goals of other people? And it's not to say that my personal goals weren't going to help me find a bridge to my professional ones, but I was putting everything and everybody ahead of me. And that was like one of the first turning points that made me imagine what I needed to do personally so that I could be fit mentally, physically. For the kind of work that I'm doing intellectually, you know, so that's where I started, like questioning myself about what do you do to make sure that this life you're living is about you and you're not just satisf satisfying and appeasing the wants and the demands of others. And I showed up in that question physically first and through that journey of changing physiologically, I started changing emotionally. And, and, and what I mean by that is I would think about things differently with respect to what was bringing me joy. I know I'm not going to check off everything on to-do list as much as I try to, right? I know that I'm not going to accomplish every goal, even though I have a long list of them. But I can say to myself every day, are you satisfied with where you're at and what you were able to do? And so I had to change my, my mindset about those different things. Else I was going to be seeing an early grave and nobody would have cared how many articles I published, how many students I've supported, um, how many conferences I presented at. Because when you're gone, what you leave behind is two things. People remember the love that you gave them and how you made them feel, but they never remembered the things that I was working towards. So that's really what was transforming in my life. Yeah. Again, a wealth of really good information. One of the things that you said that stood out to me is you mentioned that you started to question why you were showing up for everyone and everything before yourself. That process of questioning, right? That process of, I'm assuming, going inward. Was there any particular catalyst? Because we talk about that, but was it articles? Were you working with anyone externally? Did you just have a you know Oprah aha moment? Tell me a little bit about how you got to that point of self-reflection and, and, and introspection that allowed you to really think about how you wanted to move forward. If I could just be honest and allow the audience to hear the truth, the truth is the matter is that one day I woke up and I was just tired and feel like doing anything. And it wasn't because I was upset or mad. It was because I didn't have the energy to do anything because I, I'm expending all of my energy just trying to get myself dressed and ready and looking presentable so that on the outside, nobody questions Amanda, right? They see this way. I see the way, right? 
They don't question me. Um, but I get back home and I'm no good to myself. So I've done everything for you to make you feel comfortable with this space that we're in together, whether it's work or anything, but I'm not comfortable uh, with me anymore. And that led to me saying, what are you going to do to change? You know, I would also say that the other thing that was a real game changer for me is when I got sick with COVID. This is before we had vaccines for um, vaccinations or anything. I traveled to New York for a conference. It was really to be a part of a roundtable discussion about what we're going to do with education. And I got invited to Teachers College in early March, late February. Got to New York and everybody was wearing a mask. And I was like, my God, what's going on? What don't I know? But remember at this time, information trickled into us. It's like there's something going on in China. We don't know what's really going to happen. We see it coming to the States, but we'll keep you informed. So I hadn't changed my traveling or anything like that. Got there, saw everybody in the mask, and I was like, this is weird. And then after that, the very thing that I was there to do, it got canceled. Teachers College, Columbia University, they said to us in an email, we have a case of um, coronavirus on campus, so nobody is allowed to come to campus. And that was the end of that. So I was sitting in New York for a couple of days, wondering if my flight would get changed. Nothing changed. Got back home and got ill. I mean, to the point where I had to be hospitalized, couldn't breathe or anything like that. And now I'm praying out of desperation. I'm like, God, if you could just get me out of here, I'll do whatever it takes to get better. I'll take better care of me. So in many ways, while people, COVID-19 made people confront the challenges of like doing it alone and all that kind of stuff, it was an opportunity to give me space to work on Amanda in ways that I had not given myself the space to do before. Unfortunately, it took us being in lockdown before I could actually say, okay, now what will you do for you? It took me being sick because nobody can take care of you better than you can take care of yourself and that was the key thing and listen it was a process for me it was about taking a couple of steps to exercise every day now i effortlessly walk three miles monday through friday two miles saturday and sunday without question i call it my 5k every day i didn't start out that way i would just walk from my apartment door to my car right now I'm more conscientious about what I'm eating. I, I'm very conscientious of when I'm eating it. And I hope that I will always center those things because small things like being able to walk my campus without having to take breaks, that's important to me. Small things like not having to buy first class seating because I don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable sitting next to me. It's a victory for me now that I can just sit I can buy the 49 ticket to anywhere and not have to worry about additional costs or extenders. It never embarrassed me, but it cost a lot to be unhealthy and large in ways that I wasn't counting the cost. And it feels even better to count the cost now to maintain my wellness. But I think it's important to say before I could change myself physically, I did have to really think about things respectively. I had to really think about me and I wasn't thinking about me. I wasn't thinking about me. I was thinking about others. And so as you're talking about the, the turning point of your journey and you were hospitalized, so thankful that you made it through because I know exactly what the point in time that you're talking about. Like COVID was 
that point in time, we didn't really know how to treat it. So grateful that you were able to come out on the other side notoriously. And so you're back, right? You're, you've recovered from COVID, however long that journey was, I'm sure. And so now you're thinking about what to do differently. We're all in lockdown. You have a lot of time. We all had a lot of time to, to do introspection, right? And so what did you do? What tools did you use? Did, again, are, were you, was it just yourself? Were you working with a professional or what did you do at that point? Faith and family was a big part of it. Initially, it took me a long time to get back to praying like I used to because I was so disappointed with God. I was like, Lord, how is it that I give my life to somebody for five years and it amounts to nothing? I kid you not, it's almost like I, I had to be real with myself. It wasn't that I wanted the relationship, but I didn't want to be lonely. I didn't want to be alone. And I have found myself in that space where, well, you know, at least I had somebody to be with, even if it was a toxic relationship. And I'll be honest and say, I probably contribute to me. 99% of the toxicity probably came from me. But do you understand, like, <laughs> it took faith in family. So praying again and getting the support of my family and waking up in the morning and saying to myself, no, the first thing you're going to do is not worry about reading that article. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to go and work on something explicitly and directly for you. I wake up in the morning now and the first thing I do in the morning is walk. I don't care if I'm tired. I don't care if I had a long night before. I don't let my body talk me out of doing what's good for it. I tell my body what I want to do. The other thing is being very consistent. I, I'm religious. I go to church on Sunday. Amanda doesn't step foot in the church on a Sunday unless I give this temple the attention it needs Sunday morning. And Reteaching myself what it meant to love me and not wait on the love and affection and whatever from somebody else. I have to love me first. And that means taking care of my body. And I found that by reading, I'm, I'm also a consumer of information. I would love to read about, okay, how to do this transformation safely and soundly. You know, I know that walking um, 30 minutes every day increases your ability to have long-term memory. I don't care what size you are. If you exercise for 30 minutes every day, you're going to live longer than a person who's smaller than you but does not exercise or walk cardiovascularly. So just reminding myself of my why and, again, centering me. My question for people in the audience be, when's the last time you thought about doing something and it was just for you? Because I think what was going on with me is that I had become a part of the culture that says you have to do it for everybody else and be selfless. And that selfless was real dirty. I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually wanted to go to that point. Because to be honest, even my own self, I think that people of color specifically, but certainly a lot of black women, I, I can only speak to my direct experience, we are taught that in order to be, and I literally just saw a meme that I think I shared recently to a couple of friends, like in order to be a good person, it means that we have to be constantly giving of ourselves. That is the measure of a good person, right? Versus what it means. And, and even the idea that who said that being selfish was a bad thing? Right. Who said that being selfless 
is the thing, you know, and, and who kind of created that. But while I speak for myself, it, I'm going to assume it's similar. We weren't raised and thought to be more selfish and focusing on self-care and putting ourselves first, not for the sake or the idea of just being vain, but for the idea of we are not able to pour from empty cups and empty vessels. And so if we care about others, the best thing we can do for the other people we care about is to care about ourselves first and making sure that we are good because that will allow us to show up better to all those other people. That being said, when you're not taught that, what was your journey to understand how to get there and what that should look like? So I was recently reading a report that in, in a book I'm by a professor, her name is Dr. Martha Jones, and she talks about Black women being those of our communities and that we do a lot of work to help others. And one of the things she briefly touched on, she said, we, you know, Black women, they're going to have to think about themselves in proximity to how do you use everything that you have to help a community that you love and you don't get that in return. So to answer your question, I had to really start thinking about me. Listen, I'm the oldest of five sisters. I love my sisters. Some of my sisters are married. Some of my sisters have those that are married. They have children. And I'm the type of older sister that would show up and do everything for thanksgiving amanda's the girl that's coordinating everything cooking all the meals for christmas i'm trying to make sure that we have a fun time doing the family exchange um father's day i'm coordinating stuff because i'm used to being the leader of our family and guess what nobody's gonna take that role for me right because they don't want the responsibility and i get it and i have sisters that are younger and they share in some of that responsibility but not in the same way that i was willing to give because now i have I have a job. I'm solidly middle class. I also have my own business. And so I'm able to do things entrepreneurially. I have money that I can really play with. I'm traveling. But I would realize that unless my family was doing it, then I didn't do it. Give you an example. Someone had asked me two years ago, right before going, do you solo travel? I know you're not married. It doesn't appear that you're in a uh, committed relationship at that time. Um, so do you just travel alone? And I thought to myself, gosh, I really only travel to conferences to present and Disney World because my mother likes when she can take all of her grandchildren and her children to enjoy the experience and we relive the rides that we get on. But I hadn't gone on a single trip that was about my comfort, my relaxation. Let me give you another example. Just to show you like the pathology of where I was. And to also examine the process of me getting there where I'm saying does not mean I don't care about anybody any more or less, but I can't put me on the back burner. They asked me that question. I didn't think twice about it, but that's where I was. And I, I really love to travel and I love traveling to places where I can get a bit of culture and entertainment. And so when you take me to a new city, I'm always looking, do they have any museum that curates their store? Do I can understand Nashville? Um, I went to Asheville uh, in December and enjoyed it. It's like a brewery town. I'm not into beers, but I tried it, you know, things like that. But had I gone with my family, it would have been something that I never thought about doing. When I was in Asheville, I got up and I did my three miles walking. But it, it took a process. And that process for me was about, one, not feeling guilty about wanting to do stuff that was exclusively and directly 
just for me. And I had to be patient with that process because, of course, my family is so enmeshed in my life and I am in their lives, right? Mm -hmm. That if they said, hey, we're going to breakfast in the morning and it's a Saturday morning and I don't want to wake up at the crack of dawn to do my walking. I'm going to wake up at 8, 8.30, but they're talking to breakfast at 9. I had to say to myself, either you're going to go afterwards or you're not going to go at all because you have an appointment for you, by you, to do this. And I never gave up on myself. People were willing to give up on me when I was in the hospital. People were willing to give, and I mean that. They were telling me, you know, well, we don't know. I mean, I was in the emergency room so many different times before I finally got a vaccination. And even then, because I had been in the emergency room so many different times, you know, you got to go through a whole process of, are you a good candidate to get the vaccination when other people are just walking through the line to get the, you know, the vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. Making sure that I put myself first and then it created the boundaries so that my family would know, okay, Amanda's not going to do this anymore, you know, and we respect it. My mom used to say to me all the time, Amanda, you're beautiful, no matter what size I was. Amanda, you're beautiful, this, that, and the other. And it would bother me that sometimes in her knowing that it, this was a health journey and a personal walk for me, that she would say, you can't do all that. And I thought to myself, you're telling me I need to do that and more when I wasn't at my best. But I realized that they're not. It's not their responsibility. And it wasn't their goal. It was mine. Right. Mm -hmm. So being consistent, having those self-talks where I'm affirming myself mm -hmm. and I mean mm -hmm. it, I'm saying to myself, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Maybe your self-talk don't have any religion in it. That's fine. I'm OK with it. But do you talk nicely to yourself? If you don't, you can't expect anybody else to, you know. So it was things like that. And then saying to myself, everything that you want to do in life will happen. When you center you. That's a consistent thing in what I'm saying because it's the truth. It is the absolute truth. And so that was the process. Getting comfortable being with me and doing me for me. And and being able to do for my family when I can. Because now we're all adults and people are going to do what they need to do. My, my sister, she tells us all the time, I got to ask my husband. It would drive me crazy because I'm like, we knew you before your husband. You know right. <laughs> but this is what happens and not feeling bad about it. And I also think it's a cultural apathet to be like, you know, do for your blood first and the, the, the people who aren't your blood and getting, getting over, getting over that. Like it doesn't happen overnight, but when, when you start seeing the results and not just physically, when I started feeling better about myself because I was doing things for me. You couldn't convince me not to get up in the morning that I need to do. Well, if I have to tell my family, not this time, I mean it. You know, I grew up in the church and then we could go on to the next thing, but you know, I love to talk, so you probably have to stop me. I grew up in the church. My father is a pastor. And I realized that for me, all of my spiritual edification isn't going to come from sitting in a church sermon. And I get real about that with my family, that when I show up in that space, it has to be for me. I can't go to church out of duty anymore. That part of my life has died. What is very alive now is that I come because I feel welcome and that I have something that I'm going to get and I have something that I am going to give. When there, when there are moments I feel that way, 
I don't go. Doesn't mean I love God any less. Doesn't mean I'm mad with people. It just means that I'm showing up the best way I can for me. And that's what I have to tell myself all. And that's what listeners are going to have to say. When you make these changes, they come at a very high expense. They do. Nothing has come easy, including the work that I do professionally. I have to find joy in the sacrifice of sitting in my office and reading copious amounts of information and sometimes only writing two or three hundred words after I've read 10,000 words, right? Right. But I'm okay with with knowing that, okay, show up for you first. It's going to be a process. There are going to be some things you got to kiss goodbye because now you're censoring you and you can't do everything anymore first and I'm okay with that. That's it for this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue the conversation on choosing self and learn more about Amanda's personal wellness journey and resources that were helpful to her in her transformation. Enjoyed the show? Be sure to like and rate the podcast. You can find the Race, Wealth, and Health podcast on multiple platforms, including Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications so you never miss an episode. I also want to hear from you, so don't forget to connect with me on social media. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Race Wealth Health. By joining the online community, you'll stay updated on the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes insights, and engaging discussions. Share your thoughts, comments, and questions there. I appreciate your support in sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues who may also find value in these conversations. Thank you again for joining me on this journey. Until next time, take care, stay informed, and keep up the good fight for equality.